First Thessalonians chapter 5. I hope and pray that you can almost picture the Thessalonian church in your mind. Remember that people like Aristarchus, best ruler is his name. Maybe him and his family were in the church. We know he was in the church. Secundus, Gaius, Demas, all Thessalonians. Passionate about the gospel. Expecting the coming of the Lord. And we know from chapter 4, I won't do the whole review of the book like I did this morning, but from chapter 4, we have to hit this again at least. The fact that they were waiting for the Lord to return, but they were concerned about those who had died in their church. What would happen to those who have died when the Lord returns? Do they have to wait for the resurrection? What happens? And the Apostle Paul made it very clear to the Thessalonians that they were not to be discouraged or to be um, grieving as those who have no hope, but rather the hope is that the Lord will come. He's going to come with the voice, the, a voice of an, a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they actually have the blessing and the privilege of getting their glorified body first in the church age. All of the dead in Christ will be raised up, and then in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment that cannot be divided, will be instantly transformed. Those of us who are alive and remain at his coming, and our bodies will instantly be glorified. Just instantly. Can you imagine what that will be like? And we'll be lifted up and caught together up in the clouds, in the air, to meet with the Lord and to be with him forever. And what comfort we get. But there was also questions about the day of the Lord and all of that would transpire. And the Apostle Paul made it really clear concerning these times and seasons of the the day of the Lord. Darkness comes first in the Jewish day. So the Jewish day is darkness, evening, and then morning. So the dark period of seven years that would that would uh, unveil God's wrath mostly toward the nation Israel. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. God needs to break the proud heart of Israel, and it will take seven years of worldwide tribulation that his people will finally recognize Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. And at the end of the seven years, Israel will, all of Israel will be saved, praise the Lord. Not everyone individually necessarily, but Israel as a nation, as God's people, will be saved. And that's the goal and the purpose. Of course, it's a worldwide judgment as well. But it's that period of darkness. And then the Lord comes on the scene, and he is like the sun rising over the horizon. And then the millennial kingdom is the age and the time of peace and light. So you have darkness, and then you have light. The Apostle Paul said, Don't worry, believers. The day of the Lord will not come upon you like a thief in the night. But for those in the world who are crying peace and safety, listen, one shooting after another, everybody's talking, how do we get peace? How do we get safety? Build a wall, um, have more gun control. I mean, people have all sorts of ideas, and they're scrambling to solve the problem of terrorism, and they're not looking to the future king who is coming. And so while they're yelling peace and safety and crying that cry, the Lord Jesus will come, snatch us away, And like labor pains of a woman, the judgments of God will come. First, not so intense. The six seals are not so intense. They're great trials and tribulations. But after the three and a half years, Matthew 24, um, the Lord speaks in Matthew 24 that the last three and a half are called the great tribulation. And there we'll have the trumpets and the bulls poured out upon the earth. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, that it will be sudden destruction and there'll be no escape. That's fearful. 
Isn't it? But you know what we saw this morning? This morning we see that we will not be overtaken by the day of the Lord. Why? Because we're sons of light and sons of the day. We're not, we're not of the night and of darkness. We're sons of light and sons of the day. We have, a, we have a whole different nature. We are born again. We have a new nature. Secondly, we have a different behavior. We're, we're not going to sleep like the world does, and we're not going to be living in darkness and drunkenness. Rather, what are the two things? Watch and be alert. We're to be standing guard, anticipating the coming of the Lord, living holy, godly lives. So we need to be watchful and sober. And the idea of sober is without alcohol. It means our thinking has to be crystal clear. We have to be aware of what choices am I making? How am I staying away from the world? How am I abstaining from the fleshly lust which war against my soul? So it is critical that we're watchful and sober-minded. And then don't forget, we have a whole different future. We have not been appointed to wrath. We're not going to face God's judgment. Rather, we've been appointed to salvation, a guaranteed deliverance out of this body to a glorified one, a guaranteed deliverance from sin, because he says in chapter 5, that, um, that in verse 10, that Jesus died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we will live together with him. So it's a guaranteed deliverance. Don't we have much to be hopeful of? We have a great future. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another with these things. That's where we ended this morning. Now take your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's the text tonight. And we urge you, brethren, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, we beg you, we plead with you, loved ones, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. And abstain from every form of evil. So this ending part of the letter now fits in nicely with where we just left off. We're to be comforting one another. We're to be building one another up until the Lord's return or until we die, whichever comes first. Do you all agree? But there is a problem. Churches are not perfect places, and it sometimes can be hard to comfort one another, and it can be hard to edify one another, because we are not perfect people. Do you see the classifications of all the things here? There are some people that are weak of faith, and some that are strong of faith. There are some that are leaders, and some that are followers. There are some that are cynical. There are some that are gullible. The church is composed of all types of personalities and people, right? We have different bends, different personalities, different issues that we're dealing with. We're at different levels spiritually, and it could become a place of great chaos. It could be a place of great devastation and chaos. One of the most important relationships in the local church is between the pastor and the people. It is one of the most important. I mean, the church is the body of believers, all the believers. But 
the church t- does, I believe, take on the characteristics of those who lead her. I really do. I think that's true. And I think one of the hardest things in ministry is the relationship between pastor and his people and the people and their pastor. And churches that are healthy and growing and united and peaceful, I would say tend to have just a close, heartfelt, mutual respect and submission one to another between pastor submitting to the church and the church submitting to the pastor. And I think with that beautiful balance and love, the church is built up. It accomplishes her mission as she waits for her Savior. So tonight, the only thing we're going to look at is this. We're going to look at the pastor's responsibility to the church and the church's responsibility to the pastor. And then the final admonition, which is be at peace among yourselves, I believe fits in like a hinge because there has to be peace between me and you and you and me. And then when you look at the next part, there has to be peace amongst the sheep as well. So it's, there's all sorts of levels and things going on, but I do want to take a look at God's word tonight and see while we wait for the Lord's return, what do we do as a church to live out our life together? We have to learn to love one another, don't we? And extend grace and desire to work with one another for the glory of God. That's my goal. That's my thought. Let's pray. Father, as we look now to the word of God, we pray that you would open our heart and our mind to understand these relationships in the church. We want to honor your work, and we want to honor those who work in the field with you and, and the whole church. And, and I pray, Father, that we would take heed to these words and, and we would live them out and we would desire to be a church that pleases you. So thank you, Father, for giving us this teaching of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that the Holy Spirit now will enlighten us and empower us to live these out so that this church, particularly this local church, Faith Baptist, would reach the lost in our community, in our extended area, our region, even our country, and through our missionaries to the uttermost ends of this world. So thank you that you have given us direction so we can accomplish the comforting and building up ministry that you've called us to do. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. All right, so let's begin. We'll begin with the shepherd's responsibility to the sheep. The word of God says in verse 12, and we urge you, brethren. And again, it's a pleading. It's a begging. Paul is being so gentle and kind. He, he's calling them brethren, loved ones, family members. And remember, he says this 19, he uses the word brethren 19 times with this church. He has such a fond affection for the church. By the way, do you know Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church was so different than this one? With the Corinthian church, he went there in the same manner and established the Corinthian church, and they thought he was suspect from almost day one. Whatever Paul said, they questioned. He made plans to come and see them, and they said, wait a minute, Paul, you changed your plans. Paul said, well, yes, I intend to do this, but I was held up and I, stopped. I couldn't. So they said, you're lying to us. We don't trust you. You're manipulating us. We don't. And, and, they, and so 2 Corinthians, the entire book is written because the church had an issue with their pastor. And Paul is saying, listen, you're not restrained because of my heart towards you. You're restrained because of your own affections. Paul said, open your heart and know how much I love you. And then Paul said at the end of 2 Corinthians, the more that I love you, the less I'm loved in return. And it was just a hard relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. 
This is very different. The Thessalonians loved him and couldn't wait to see him back in their, in their church. And he loved those Thessalonians desperately too. So think about the Thessalonian church quickly as we start. They're only months old. They've been organized to have an assembly and to know that they need to celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptize believers. They need to, you know, they, they sing hymns of praise. They read the scriptures and they teach the scriptures and they apply the scriptures. But what about the leadership? How do you get a church started out of a pagan group of people and within months you have somebody standing up preaching to them? How would that be? Kind of like me with this church. Remember back in 1993 when I was born again and I came here and the next thing you know I'm teaching the youth group and then only a few years later I'm pastoring and many of you saw me before I was saved. You saw me coming here unsaved. You prayed for me that I would get saved and then now here I am your pastor. It it was kind of like that. The people that rose up in the Thessalonian church to lead the church, they were also newer converts and and people that were still growing and learning and and figuring out the ministry. So I think there probably wasn't great conflict in the church, but every church has conflict. And Paul is making sure, here's how we handle things biblically. Let's begin, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, and here it is, to recognize those who labor among you, that's one responsibility of the pastor, labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Now, um, first of all, The word labor means copious. It's the word copias, which means sweat to the point of exhaustion. One of the pastor's responsibilities is to work for the church. And it's a general word. It's working in the laboring of the preaching of the word of God. It's the ministry of the word and prayer, like Acts chapter 6, verse 4 says. But it entails entails just a life of work, a life of serving the church, of ministering to the body of believers. I mean, I look at, at... you know, the counseling and the, and, the contact, and the contact and the conversations that I have, so many during the week that I can hardly keep track. Seriously, it's, it's incredible how many different needs could come up in one day that when you wake up, you think, I've got six hours to study. It's going to be a quiet day at church. It's going to be a quiet day in my life. And by the end of the day, I look back and I say, wow, what happened? Um, the, really, the pastor's called the labor to, to labor, to, to show good work, godly work, with the church, and here it says, labor among you in the sphere alongside all the people of the church. And so we work together, but I set an example of working hard and laboring faithfully in the word of God and in prayer. The second responsibility, it says, to la- okay, recognize those who labor among you, who, who work hard and uh, work exhaustingly among you. And then it says, and are over you in the Lord. And the idea of to, to be over you, it means to stand in front of, to stand before. It means to lead. Now, there are different words for the pastor, and they're all kind of found in 1 Peter 5 for the most part. Here, here are some of them. In 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter says, and I'll just kind of give them to you without you turning to it. Peter says um, he exhorts the fellow elders in the church. The word elder, presbyteros. You know what an elder is? It means a mature man, an older man. So a pastor should be one who has spiritual maturity, who has wisdom, who has experience in, in, in spiritual things and in the truth. And, and he should be a presbyteros, meaning a mature, a spiritually mature man. Then it says, shepherd the flock of God among you, whom the Holy Spirit sent you as overseers. So the word shepherd, it's the word pastor. 
poime in the Greek. So not only is a, is a pastor to be a spiritually mature man, but the idea of shepherding is to protect the flock and to feed the flock. So my responsibility is to be spiritually mature myself in my character and my understanding, and then to spiritually feed you and then spiritually protect you because there's all sorts of voices out there and there's all sorts of enemies out there, and I want to protect you and feed you and, and give you the very best meals possible from God's word to shepherd the flock of God. And then it says, um, um, whom, whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the third term for a pastor. So a pastor is an elder we also call him a pastor, but then an overseer is episkopos, one who has the oversight to, to know what is being taught, what is happening. Um, just to have the oversight spiritually of the church is an important part of, of the pastor. And then here, so that's the word bishop. If you sometimes see the word bishop, it's an elder, pastor, bishop. They're all the same office. They're all the same position, the person. Here, it's the ones who stand in front of you. It's not so much the office as the task. It means to lead. To stand over you means to lead, to bring you along a certain direction spiritually. So I'm looking. What do we need to learn? We should be studying some things to come in the book of Revelation. We covered the book of Job, suffering and great trials. We're now looking at encouragement and being evangelistic in the book of First Thessalonians. And so I'm, I'm, always, I'm trying to stand before you and to lead by example and, and lead you in the word of God. So I'm to labor among you. My responsibility, secondly, is to, to be over you in the Lord. So it's to stand before you and to lead. And I do it in the Lord, which means I'm not self-appointed. You realize that, right? I didn't wake up one day and say, well, I want to be pastor of Faith Baptist. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. No. Also, the church didn't appoint me. You recognized it, but you didn't appoint me. The Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5, the Holy Spirit picks men for local churches. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's phenomenal that he puts me in this corner, in this place of the universe, to shepherd and to protect his people, his children. And so the church recognizes that God has called me, and you approve it by recognizing it. But again, I, I stand over you in the Lord, under the Lord's authority, under his sphere of everything. So my responsibility, again, pastor's responsibilities are to labor among you. They're to, to be over you, to lead, to lead you um, in the Lord. And the last part, number three, to admonish you. The word Admonish, Nathaniel, it means to put into your mind, to put sense into your mind. It's the idea of instruction with correction. I need to teach the word of God. I need to instruct you, but I also need to correct you, preaching to, to change, to change our lives. And I need the correction as well. So when I'm preaching and when I'm studying the word of God, the word of God is changing my mind and changing my heart, but I need to come alongside and say, you were, you're not going the right way. This is the way. Let's walk in it. You know, this is the correct way. This is the way. If you continue on in this path, it will lead only to misery and despair. If you follow this word of God, you will, you will be blessed and, and you are on the right path. So admonishing is difficult, isn't it? How many of us like correction? None of us like correction. It's very difficult to be corrected. And one of the important ministries is to labor, to, to be over the church in the sense of leading and to stand before, but also it's, it's to, to correct. It's to teach 
with the idea of correcting unto godliness. Let's take a quick look at the responsibility of the sheep towards the shepherd. Verse 12, we get the first of two terms here. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. The first thing the church should do is recognize their, their, their leaders. And the idea of recognize, it's the word oida in the Greek. It's an intimate knowledge of, with the idea of deep appreciation. It's the word used between a husband and a wife. It's that close of a relationship. So it's to know the man, to know his heart, to know what he's doing and, and what he's thinking and where his heart is, and then to appreciate and the worth and the value of, of that. So it's to recognize, to respect, but I would even say to appreciate, to know and appreciate the man that God has at your church or the men that God has at your church. Um, so it's, it's to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and in my Remember for the Thessalonians, their leaders might have just been people that they worked with or people that they had invited to church, and they now, they now are teaching the word of God to them. So there had to be a, a, a mutual submission, pastor to the church and church to the pastor. And then look at the verse 13 for the next responsibility of the people of the church and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Lots of words here. The, word, the idea of to esteem them means to carry them along. Um, to carry them along, to lift them up is the idea. You know, I, I was a business owner, and I dealt with business people in West Duluth. I was the business club president in West Duluth. Um, I had different responsibilities. I had a um, nonprofit organization that I started tied to my music store, and, and when all of that went away, um, they literally um, said, you know what, we don't want you on the board of directors. We, and then they kind of like kicked me out of my own group and then took everything that we had built up and worked, to, worked for over the years. And it was heartbreaking, and it was, it was hard to think, wow, I started this, and I built it up, and then I was kicked out of it. Um, that is nothing compared to the, the heartache that can happen in a church. Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, or no, I was, um, um, he, wrote, he preached the message, uh, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, of an Angry God. He... Um, pastored his church for 30 years, and then after 30 years, they, they kicked him out. I mean, just what heartache. He had invested in the lives of so many people, and then after 30 years, he just, they just kicked him out. And you can read more about that and look that up online, things like that. But um, sometimes ministry can be the, the very hardest thing in the world and, and the greatest weight and the greatest burden. And here, Paul encourages the church to lift them up to esteem them, to lift them up. Um, and then it says very highly. And it, this phrase in the Greek, very highly, it's the idea beyond all measure, abundantly, um, just to esteem them very highly, um, to, to lift them up. And then he says, in love. You, you do it in love, which means sometimes you, you have to overlook weaknesses because doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? And I'll tell you what, you look at my life and you will find weaknesses. You will find plenty of areas to be critical about. 
I mean, I play the piano too fast. I preach too long. I don't preach clearly enough. I mean, you could find you could find many, many things to be critical about um, the suit I wear. And I mean, it, it, trust me, if you looked hard enough, it would be no no problem to fill up a whole page of things. But um, but love can cover a lot of that, can't it? Um, so we're to esteem those whom God has given us as to lead us in the, in the ways of the Lord and to teach us the word of God. We're to esteem them very highly, and we're to do it in, in love. Encourage them, lift them up, speak well of them, um, pray for them, and we do it out of love. Uh, but we do it for their work's sake, for the work's sake, for the sake of the gospel and the proclamation of God's word. Don't do it because it's, because they have such a clever personality or because they did you a bunch of favors and so therefore you feel like you have to esteem them highly, you esteem them because of the position, because of the responsibility of leading the church. Boy, we want churches with godly shepherds, don't we? We want all of our churches in our association, all Bible-believing churches, to have tender-hearted, loving, caring shepherds that are firm in the truth, willing to correct holding fast to the word of God, not compromising, not giving into the ways of the world, not giving into sin, not allowing sin to rule in their life, not allowing sin to rule in the church. I mean, we want and we desperately need men like that in the church. And, and uh, it is, it's a high and it's a serious calling for the church. But why do we esteem these leaders highly in love? We do it for their work's sake, for the sake of the gospel and for the, the word of God and its proclamation. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace. Have a peaceful relationship. I think when you look back at the, the previous section, have a peaceful relationship between the pastor and the church and the church and the pastor. And then also, you be at peace among yourselves as you look forward to the next verses about warning the unruly and comforting the faint-hearted and lifting up those who are weak. So we're, just, we're to be at peace with one another. That's what God wants, peace in his church. Take your Bibles quickly as we look at the book of James, chapter 4. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And let's begin in verse 1. Well, let's go back, verse 17 of chapter 3. There's a contrast here between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is um, portrayed a certain way. Earthly wisdom is sensual, and it's full of envy and self-seeking. We know that. But in verse 17, here's the wisdom that comes from heaven. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. It's willing to yield Heavenly wisdom is willing to yield to others, to say, you know what? I'm not going to make a fight over it. I'm going to yield to others, to others' wishes or or whatever, um, provided they're not sinful. So it's willing to yield, full of mercy. And by the way, willing to yield, you know what I think of when I think of that word, willing to yield? In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, let your moderation be known to all men. And the idea of moderation is the idea of not demanding your rights. And I use this example. Abraham and Lot, maybe you've heard me say this many times before, but who did God give the promised land to? Abraham. How much of the promised land? 
all of it belonged to Abraham. And there was strife. There was conflict between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Abraham could simply have said, Lot, pack your bags and get out of here. This is my land. God gave it to me. This is, it's my rights, my land, my place. You get out of here. I want nothing to do with you for the conflict. But rather, what did Abraham do? Lot, you choose whatever land you want first. Take whatever land you want, and I'll take what's left over. You go first. I'll go second. Could Abraham have demanded his rights and gotten Lot out of the promised land, and he could have it all to himself? Yes, but he showed his gentleness, his willingness to yield by saying, Lot, you choose. Now, what did Lot choose? The plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is like the, the, the land of the Garden of Eden, and that was a big mistake because then all sorts of things bad happened. And then Abraham was left with the hills of Ephraim, which are just rocky. You, you practically have to shoot the ground with a shotgun to plant a, a piece of corn. It's that type of ground. But Abraham said, it's more important with peace to defer my rights. I, I'm willing to yield. And so that's what heavenly wisdom is. It's, it's, just, it's to say, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to yield. And then full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's heavenly wisdom. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you want a fruit of peacefulness in your relationships, you've got to be planting peace in righteousness, and that's, what, that's, what, that's the kind of crop that you'll, you'll raise up. Now, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Where do the conflicts come? The wars and the fights come from... And I think James is talking about the church. Where do the wars and fights come from amongst the church? What's the source of angry words, unforgiving looks, cold shoulders? Where, where, what's the source of all of that? Here's what it is. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So I have a flesh nature. And when I'm hurt or I'm offended... Instantly, I'll tell you what happens in my body. Not physiologically, but spiritually. What happens is my flesh, the old nature, the old man, Brian Weida, born in 67, born in corruption and sin, immediately rises up to full attention to battle array. And my flesh wants to battle for my rights, my ways, my sinful desires, my passions, Anything that is maybe outside of the Holy Spirit's bounds, my flesh rises up to begin a war and a fight because it's gonna, it wants to rule and reign in my body. So where do wars and fights come? They come from desires that hit my body and my whole flesh rises up in battle array to fight to the end for victory. And anybody who gets in my way, I will battle and fight which means I won't forgive, I, I won't make peace, I want my way, I'm going to have it this way. There's no exceptions. That's, where do those wars and fights come? It comes from our desires for pleasure. Uh, that's what our, our flesh wants, is to be pleased, to please themselves. And it, it wars in our body. It wars in our members, our body. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have. So then their whole body comes to attention to fight. You murder and covet, and you cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You are asking, but you do not receive because you are asking amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, even their prayer life was 
to selfish pursuits and selfish end. And if we're driven by selfish pursuits and selfish ends, then we will fight to the death for that. We'll demand our way, demand our satisfaction for our selfish pursuits, and it will, there won't be peace amongst ourselves, and it's devastating to the church, and it's devastating to the community. It's devastating for the witness of, of, our, of our whole assembly. And then he says in verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We only have uh, the, the cure, verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You run to him, and like the prodigal son father, God is already running to us as we come to him just asking for his, his work to be done in our life. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. How do we comfort one another and edify one another until the day of the coming of, of Jesus, until the day of the rapture? Well, I want to labor amongst you. I want to work hard, laboring in many ways, mostly in the ministry of the word and prayer. I want to be able to stand before you in the, in the Lord and lead you and protect you and guide you with spiritual wisdom and maturity. And I want to correct you and admonish you with love by the word of God. And then you appreciate and recognize those who labor among you and you esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And we all live at peace with, our, with one another. We're living in peaceful relationships. The wars and fights subside and we're not seeking and demanding our rights and our ways. Now, next Sunday morning, we'll pick up sheep-to-sheep relationships. What do we do one to another, sheep in the church? And then the last part, verses 16 to 22, what do we do, what's our response from sheep to the great shepherd, Jesus? So the first part, it's, past, it's the sheep to the shepherd, shepherd to the sheep. Then it's sheep-to-sheep relationships. And then it's finally our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we'll have some good things next week as we finish up 1 Thessalonians. Then we're going to keep going and move right into 2 Thessalonians. And we'll finish off August in that short book, 2 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, we lift up uh, the church to you. Thank you so much for the church. I pray for just that our, we would comfort one another with your words as we await the coming of Jesus. Many people are suffering and afflicted, and the days that we live are hard. They're corrupt and dark days. We are children of light, and we don't fit into this world. But we're thankful for that. We want to be distinct men and women, boys and girls. We want to proclaim the gospel and have blameless, harmless lives in this crooked and perverse world that we could shine as lights in the darkness. And so, Father, thank you that you've given us some admonition as a church how to live and accomplish this. I pray that we who lead in the church would be busy laboring for the church, uh, the word of God and prayer, that we would be diligent to lead with wisdom and maturity, and that we would be willing to correct and to come alongside and help build the church to godliness. And thank you, Father, for the church's response to their leaders. May you be honored and glorified in the local church. May we live at peace with one another, and even as we look at next Sunday morning and next Sunday night, all of those relationship issues that come up, Help us to have a strong and a healthy and a godly local church. Thank you so much for the church that you've called here, all the believers that you have placed into this body. 
We just pray that we would protect one another and that we would love one another more and more as we see the day approaching. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.